it's very similar to food, right? And and so people who are brought up on diets, frozen foods and lots and lots of sugar and different soft drinks, you don't realize your body doesn't feel well until you eat a healthier diet or you know, if you smoke cigarettes, it doesn't feel bad until you stop. And then you realize like, oh, wow, that was, you know, nothing like a cigarette after five years of quitting. You, you really feel it again. So our bodies adapt and so does our mind. And we get used to the state we're in. And when you shift and you find a state that's a little more empowering and feels better, you know, then it's more motivating as well to continue Hi, this is Joshua Spodek, and this is Leadership in the Environment. You're not the only one who cares about your impact enough to act. You're part of a global community undeterred by people saying, if others don't change first, then what I do doesn't matter, and other excuses. We've read the science. We can do this. This show is about personal responsibility, acting, and improving your life by your values. As guest after guest says, the challenge was hard, but thank you for getting me to do it. I wish I'd done it earlier. Listen on for leaders to inspire you, hear their struggles, and then act. Go to joshuaspodick.com slash podcast to commit to a public personal challenge of your own. You're not alone, and you don't have to wait for others. Laura and I explore the feelings and emotions around our environmental behavior, specifically behavior that we don't like, things like throwing away food. I think that you'll find her descriptions of how people feel familiar, like you probably feel something similar to what she describes. In other episodes, I've shared how I find that emotions are causing our environmental problems, not carbon dioxide. That is, carbon dioxide, it's a molecule. Its behavior results from our behavior. That's why I find what's missing is leadership, influencing people's emotions, their beliefs. That will change their behavior, and that will change the results of things like carbon dioxide, plastic, mercury, things like that. As it is now, People consider acting on the environment a chore, a distraction, because leaders or would-be leaders treat it that way. They act like you don't want to do this, so do this little thing. Whereas I find that if you enjoy it, then you like doing these things. And I find I like vegetables more than, say, packaged food. So if we want people to like acting on their environmental values so they do it for themselves, it will help them to help connect rewarding emotions to that behavior. Laura describes the emotional landscape of someone not acting on their values and how to change them. So let's listen. Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spodak. I'm here with Laura Coe. Laura, how are you? How's it going, Josh? How are you today? I'm very good, and I'm really looking forward to this. You know, I was listening to our conversation before this one, and you did something interesting. You said that environment wasn't, of course, it's a concern, but not that big of a concern. But the language you used was actually pretty strong. You said it was like horrifying, some of the things that were happening. And then you you took on a task that it was... I'll ask you to remind us, but what I, what I remember is that it was, um, you're going to do your best to half the amount of food waste that comes out. And I'm going to guess that depending on how much you got into it, when I do things to wake up in the morning, more alert, what actually happens is I spend a lot more time. I put my effort into going to sleep on time. And I have a feeling that what you aimed for in less pollution came up in other areas. I'm just guessing at that. I wonder how things, I wonder if you could remind us how things, what your challenge was and what you did. Yeah, for sure. Well, first of all, I want to back up to your first point. I do find what's going on with the environment horrifying, if that's the word that I used. I'm sticking to that. It, uh-huh. I don't mean that I'm not engaged in it. I just, I guess I interpreted that question a little more narrowly. I don't know that I 
focused as much of my time and energy on actively participating in it in the way that I do with the work that I'm focused on, right? Which is more around authenticity and people having lives that are reflective of their truths and what that means and philosophy and all that, all that space is, you know, my passion and what I feel is authentic to me. So while I do follow it and think about it and care about it deeply, um, it isn't something that I'm as focused on on a day-to-day basis in terms of, you know, a, a passion per se. I bet that you take a few things for granted that if you lived in a generation ago, you might have done some things because you were pretty quick to connect things with your son. And I think you also looked at things in terms of global warming, but the environment is a lot of other things. And I, I would guess, and I could be wrong, that there are a lot of things that you just take for granted that you do that are a past generation would consider very environmental, but that for you, it's just natural. Like, yeah. 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 I think I do a, a, a reasonable job. It's just not something that I'm um, active, act, you know, super activated on. And um, I appreciate people like you who are taking the time to talk about it and, and bring the awareness out at a different level. Uh, more than awareness and talking behavior is the big thing that I, I always make that difference distinction. Yes, you do. You, you work really hard on, on activating people and yourself and that's what matters in the end. And so, yeah, what did I do? I think you said it pretty well. I, I wanted to, I noticed that we were going to the grocery store and throwing away a reasonable amount of food. Um, and I was looking to um, see if I could make changes in my life so that I could cut that down substantially and feel like the end of the week when I was emptying the refrigerator, there wasn't sort of a moment of shame <laughs> that went along with it. So yeah, that's, that's what I was doing. All right. I'm going to ask you something. I haven't, the shame that you describe, where did it come from? Is that internal from external? I don't know if you have a handle on it. Cause a lot of people's like shame isn't something they really spend time thinking about getting close with. Um, I, yeah, I spend an exorbitant amount of time on these ideas cause that is right in my, my wheelhouse. And I, I guess I, I define shame and guilt, right? So shame is I am bad. I am actually made wrong and guilt is I did something wrong. So I should probably start by saying I have a certain amount of guilt around it. Um, <laughs> sort of clarify the difference. And yeah, I, I am aware of it. I don't think I've spent a ton of time thinking about it. It's not something that haunts me um, for hours, but in that moment where the food is being wasted, it, it crosses my mind, you know, this isn't right. And, you know, that little reflective moment you have, but not necessarily strong enough pull to make the change or something that you think about, you know, consistently throughout the day. It's hard for me not to project my experience on others, but I find that that feeling, when it starts creeping up on you, you start feeling like there's a little guilt on the horizon, a little shame on the horizon, some anxiety. I tend to think, oh, I don't want to feel that and I'll try to avoid it. And so my way of avoiding it for most of my life was to not like what it would come on. I'd start thinking, oh, well, I'll do this thing later. Or I would do what I could to like push it down. And sure. it wouldn't actually make the source of it go away. So it would I'd have this lingering feeling that I would associate with th- thinking or acting on the environment of guilt and blame and shame and things like that. And that what actually got rid of it was to act, to finally say, all right, what's causing this? And to act to bring my behavior in line with my uh, values. And then instead of just kind of shoving it, sweeping it under the rug where it didn't actually go away, now that I feel like I'm acting, you know, I can't solve everything. I can't fix the whole world, but I'm doing what I can. 
And that makes the feeling go away. I'm not sure if that's, you're someone, I figure that you look more deeply into these things and might have thought about something at some similar level. And I wanted to get a feel, am I projecting myself onto others or is this a common thing among people? Well, I mean, you know, my book, Emotional Obesity, I mean, that is my, my belief is that we, it is easier in the, in the moment to shove those feelings down, to not look at them, to, I think we're, we're taught also um, to man up, suck it up. Emotions will make you weak. If you sit around and think about them, there's something wrong with you, right? Just to just uh, grind through it, to push through to the other side, that, that it's strong if we can avoid those feelings and, and just keep pushing. So we're trained at very young ages to, to avoid, to, to deny, to push down. And so it comes out in areas when it's not of value to us later in life. And, you know, my, my belief is that we slowly get weighed down by those things and they don't actually go away. They become a heaviness in our life. And so, um, I do think, uh, you know, I call it emotional workouts, but like on a regular basis, slowing down to notice those feelings, to think about, you know, whether they're aligned with your beliefs, like you said, and to do things that are different so that you can align your actions with your beliefs. The reality is is that um, the beliefs that we have are often so unconscious and deeply rooted, it's hard to sometimes locate them and it's hard to notice and or to know what actions to take in a different direction. So I think that it is very common for people. I think execution around this stuff is is complicated and we're not taught how to do it. So most people also feel like it's an overwhelming process to engage in. It's not, but it it, it isn't something that we're trained in. And like I said, we're actually trained to do the opposite. So I agree with everything you're saying. Do I think it's a common thing? I, I think most people are are taught the opposite and hopefully you know, we we can retrain and in our adult life, learn how to comfortably look at situations, think if it's aligned with our belief, think about actions to take and um, keep our lives, you know, in flow state. In a practical level though, right? Like our beliefs are changing on, an, on a month by month basis, sometimes year by year, sometimes, you know, decade by decade. You know, what I wanted when I was 20 isn't the same as what I want when I'm, you know, rounding towards 50 so the evaluation of that stuff is an ongoing process and imperfect. And we can only look at so many things at a time because, you know, there's, there's a lot of different areas of our lives. It's a funny world that teaches us to suppress our awareness of our emotions while simultaneously, at least in some parts, saying self-awareness is very important. You should increase your self-awareness. And now individuals are caught in the middle of like, wait, well, speaking for myself, I, I didn't notice the disparity—not disparity, but the you know the conflicting instruction. In the end, you're supposed to be yourself, and you're like, "Wait a minute, which self? You told me to do all these different things and to be all these different things, and it's hard to disentangle what of me came from others and what was myself." Except that I find that act, I'm finding increasingly that acting on these things distills out what is. That's the way to find out what. Everyone says, I value family. Everyone says, I value community. Everyone says, I value education. And there's a, but what happens when they, are in conf- when they conflict with each other? That's when you find out which ones you really care about most. And the, the end result, I feel, is liberation from the confusion and not knowing what to do. Because when you finally disentangle it all, then it becomes clear. Like To me, acting, the environmental stuff, 
that I do in my life is rooted in responsibility and, and how I responsibility for how my actions affect others. And that to me is a very high priority as well as, you know, delicious and, and saving money and things like that. And it's very liberating to, to do what I feel is important and the things that are less important fall by the wayside. And when people say, Josh, you're so extreme on the things you do, I'm like, how is it extreme? I don't feel like, like to live my values extremely. It's kind of a weird, it doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. So I think the first thing you said that the conflicting values of mindfulness and manning up, mindfulness is new, right? In the last um, five to 10 years, it's gotten much more popular to talk about that. Um, You know, 20 year olds are, that's, you know, they're growing up with this vocabulary, which is really beautiful at a younger age. So I do think it's been infused into our culture lately at a much higher clip. And so there is a bit of a contradiction to your point that, right, we're being taught both things. But I, I don't think there's all that many people who are really interested in educating young kids, you know, on emotional intelligence and introspection and managing your emotional states and getting curious about who you are and getting curious about what an emotion might mean and what are your values. There's nothing in our education system, you know, first and foremost, you can get all the way through an elite education without one single class, unless you, you elect into it maybe in college, but, and those classes are relatively new to the college system. So, you know, I think while you say, you're doing these things and, and to live your life that are in a way that's extremely aligned with your values. I don't think most people have the skill sets to figure out what their values are against what they've learned from their parents versus what's in the culture and to break all those things apart, find out what their truth is, know the difference between their truth and learn values, and then take action to course correct towards things that are more aligned with your values. It, it's again, I think it's a, it's a practice that you've probably spent a lot of time on and you've gotten really good at, but um, I don't think most people um, have the vocabulary and experience to, to do it uh, because it's not really available to that many of us. Yeah. I guess I was thinking of a, of a subset and I was thinking of different times that as your kid, no one, I agree that I never got education, in any of these things and of self-awareness and what I would call the social and emotional skills of leadership. I guess what I meant is, and then at some point you get slammed into, if you want to take a leadership role, if you want to influence others, if you want to, even if it's simply as rising up within an organization, you're supposed to have these people skills, you might call them. And suddenly you're slammed into this opposite of what, in some ways, opposite of all the stuff you learned. Yeah. It's this different, it's more like not a conflict at once. It's like you just somehow find yourself suddenly you're you're going to one way street one way. And then suddenly it's like you, it's one way, the other way. Yeah. It's the matrix. Right. And I think once you, you realize like, Oh wow, (laughs) this is all one big um, matrix. I need to get myself out of this paradigm and I need to uh, look at things from a different perspective. Life takes on an easier, um, an ease that, that I don't think exists without it. But again, like, I think it's just getting that awareness and exposure, having the opportunity to see it differently and then practicing it for a while. And um, the more you practice the introspection and shifts, the, the easier that gets. Yeah. I'm playing in my head with, with your analogy, also with the emotional obesity. And I wonder if when you're a kid growing up, people say, if you're a good boy or good girl or whatever, then you'll get some candy, which implies candy is good. And then at one point they're like, no, Kenny's bad. It's yeah. 
Yeah, it's very similar to food, right? And and so people who are brought up on diets, frozen foods and and lots and lots of sugar and you know different soft drinks, you don't realize your body doesn't feel well until you eat a healthier diet or you know, if you smoke cigarettes, it doesn't feel bad until you stop and then you realize like, oh wow, that was, you know, nothing like a cigarette after five years of quitting. You you really feel it again. So our bodies adapt and so does our mind. And we get used to the state we're in. And when you shift and you find a state that's a little more empowering and feels better, you know, then it's more motivating as well to continue with it. Now I want to shift back to your challenge and how things went. So it was to avoid that feeling at the end of, of emptying out the fridge and having what was supposed to be eaten, having to throw it, away, throw it away or compost it. How did things go? Yeah, it was really cool, to be totally honest. Uh, much, much easier um, than I anticipated because it just really didn't take all that much more than some um, of a little bit of a commitment and I already had the awareness. So it's something as simple as starting my week and thinking about Okay, you know what nights is my my son? His parents are separated, so he he goes between houses. What nights is he with me? You know, are we gonna cook on those nights? What exactly does he need for breakfast? And just slowing down and thinking about the week, all of two three minutes, right? Because I I know the week pretty quickly, and we've uh, I'm preparing meals for him all the time, so I understand the quantities. It's not overwhelmingly complicated, and just hitting the grocery store an extra time or two, but in smaller quantities, right? So I was buying specifically for what I needed over the next day or two, and then coming back and and doing it again. And that really seemed to make all the difference. There's a couple things that I feel like it's just a little tough buying a loaf of bread for one 13-year-old. It's hard for him to get to the end of that loaf without freezing half of it and then defrosting it. So it'd be nice if you know, the grocery store has sold half loaves and things, <laughs> but it's not really an option. So mainly though, it, it went very, very well. And it almost sounds like an unalloyed positive to your life. There's the bread issue, which seems like even if you, if you did everything and just said, let's punt on the bread and do what I, what I used to do, you'd still have made a significant change. Are, are you just saying that because you're on a podcast and people are going to hear you or was it really just like a, not just net positive, but it sounds like it was just pure positive. I'm just, I'm just saying it because I'm on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, you know, I um, almost feel like it's an unremarkable story because it was such an easy shift. You know, the pain points to get it done were relatively low. The grocery store isn't far away. It's easy to park in. I could go up and do the shopping real fast. I actually didn't have to meal plan the whole week, so. It just, you know, go in, go out for the next 48 hours, get what I need, come back if um, if I need to. So it, it just wasn't all that complicated to get done. Minus, like I said, I agree with you, just sort of punt on the bread question. <laughs> and, uh, and you know, I feel, I feel really good about it. There's very, very little wasted food now at the end of the week. I'm picturing you and your son with a loaf of bread on a football field, punting it back and forth. <laughs> <laughs> right. The, the geek in me like, takes things so literally. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe the creative one in me sees, sees things as colorfully. Now, it felt like there was some time in, the, in our first conversation, and as we've talked about these things before in life, before recording for this podcast, that it seemed like a pain in the butt to, to get started on these things. Was there a hurdle? Okay, if the change is, is done, 
was there something preventing the change from happening before? Could you've done this before? What was why not do it before? Yeah, I think it's a fair question, and I'll just sort of stick to the point we were talking about with um, emotional work. And the reality is, when we look at our lives and we think about how many things can I be conscious of, you know, there's this Miller's law that you can only be conscious of seven things at a given time. Every day we have six thousand thoughts, and five thousand are apparently the same thoughts as we had the day before. <laughs> like there, the the ability to kind of pull stuff out of our unconscious mind, bring it into our conscious mind make the effort to think about what are those values specifically in that area of my life? How does it not align? What am I going to do about it? Take action on it. We just can only focus on so many of those, in my opinion, without some burnout. So at various times in my life, there's different things that draw my attention, whether it's, you know, does this value system align with my parenting belief? Does this value system align with who I am as a friend? Uh, Does this value align with how I show up in relationships? Uh, Where am I with my work? So, you know, there's so, so many of them that I try hard not to set unrealistic goals, find this process of awareness to be more of a a work than a joy in my life. So I, you know, I think it's simply put, this wasn't like high on my list of things that were causing a pain point in my life relative to others. And I think we are organized around that. And so it didn't just didn't get to the top of the, okay, this is the week that I'm going to tackle this one. It makes me think of something that I'm partly making this change. I, I, I intend to make this change more fully and it hasn't completely sunk in, but it's very easy to say, you see, I see litter around and my default reaction before was to say, people just don't care, but it's not that they don't care. It's, they do care, but there's, as you say, there's like plenty of other things. And I mean, no one wants dirty, no one wants polluted air, polluted water, polluted land. If they're doing something that leads to that result, it's not that they want to pollute. It's that there's other stuff on their minds. And, you know, for most of our, most of human history, there was every, everything was biodegradable up until very recently in, you know, in terms of like hundreds of thousands of years of homo sapiens being around. And so if there's still habits of people drop stuff on the ground and don't really think about it, for a few generations after hundreds of thousands of years, you'd expect some of that to linger. And even though people still care. And so I try to, I guess I'm finding myself catching more people. I was talking to someone, I I gave this talk somewhere and afterwards someone was saying how people just don't care about the environment. And I had to be careful about how I did this with him. And I said, well, you know, do you fly much? And he goes, yeah. And I go, well, do you care about the environment? Because someone could say, you don't care because of the pollution from that. And he goes, well, of course I care. And he kind of caught the, I think I did it okay, more tactfully than I just did here now. But then he picked up, yeah, people can do stuff that's very polluting, even though they care about the environment, which is part of the reason why I focus on behavior so much. Yeah. I I mean, this is the challenge, right? Like when I said to you at the beginning about my awareness of it versus maybe all the action, we can only do so many things in a day or a week. And I, I care deeply about the foster care system. It's it's, it's, you know, it's very sad what's going on with children in our country. We have so much and yet um, there's these children who are in, in those systems. The way we, we put, you know, animals in the anti-cruelty system. I mean, there's so many, right? If I started to list the things that I wish would be otherwise, the, you know, I was in healthcare for a very long time and, you know, our healthcare systems and the disparity of healthcare that one person may get in one hospital versus another one is incredible. I mean, you can get third world care in this country and 
There's also the best healthcare better than any other country at the, at the elite hospitals. So, you know, picking and choosing where you're going to focus and make an impact because you don't also want to be spread everywhere and really incapable of making any impact. So it's, you know, there's a lot out there to care about and there's only so many hours in the day to take action. So I think people pick and choose between the things that they feel passionate about. And hopefully there's enough of us where, you know, you deeply and authentically and passionately care about this to take more and more action and motivate us to take me to challenge and go do, do something about it. And, and right. Somebody else does it in, in another area. Yeah. Part of the reason I, I focus on people with voices in an audience such as yours is that I think that the more people find, oh, people around me are doing this, it becomes less of like a burden or a challenge and more of just a community norm. And that, which I is very, I, I try not to do this by spreading facts, doom and gloom and guilt and blame and things like that. And so I go to people like you, because you have an audience and that hopefully people listen and think, you know, it's not just me doing this. It's someone else. It's, it's people in my community and people who have who are in lots of people's communities, I feel like that makes it less of, ugh, and more like, oh, if if that's effective emotional communication. (laughs) Yeah, I think most of us know the difference between those two groans. Yeah, I I think that's right. I think hopefully, you know, it it motivates people and it excites them. And it inspires, as you've inspired me, to inspire somebody else if if I can come on and share a story and do it in a way that, feels manageable. And, you know, it's each step, each person taking action, right? That that leads to a community of people who are focused on these things. And, it, you know, I think that's how change occurs. Feeling inspired? Do you like hearing others acting that you're not alone? Go to joshuaspodek.com slash podcast to hear other interviews, but even more valuable. Join the growing community of people who care enough to act not just talk. Read the list of people who have taken on personal challenges and then commit to one yourself. Don't be surprised if you end up loving it, changing more, and finding people following you without you even trying. That's what happens when you improve your life by living by your values. So now having done it, is it effort all the time or was the effort that one time to get over the hurdle to make it a new habit and now it's taken care of? Or is it still like each week this effort? How is it? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, that kind of dives into a deeper question about habit formation. And as somebody who's really worked on this concept of, you know, what we keep coming back to, where are my values in this particular topic? Are they aligned with the actions I'm taking, right? Because I want my my life to actually reflect my, my inner self and what is my inner self and what are constructs and what's my truth and how do I find the difference? I've done so much of that work that it it is once I do isolate these things, I have systems in place in my life that make it relatively quick for me. So I will say for myself, it was pretty fast to become a bit of a habit. I would say though, for people listening, if you experience this or you go out and you try it and it takes a couple of weeks to make a habit of it, you know, not to get discouraged. Uh, habit formation um, is its own experience and learning effective systems for yourself to get a habit from, right? Uh, Something that you have to really consciously think about and put effort into until it becomes unconscious and effortless is, is a bit of a process. It sounds like, so for most people, it might take a bit longer, but people who have formed a lot of habits and have learned the, my perspective is to learn the social emotional skills of creating the habits. 
it can be really quick. It can be. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's so important to just practice, you know, changing habits in all areas of your life, because that's the trick, right? Getting, getting the, the brain to make a new pathway and to be inspired to do differently. Uh, we don't want that to be a really painful and slow process. One of the things I say to people as someone who teaches leadership and tries to teach people to develop habits, if you look, if you aren't someone who has, who are particularly skilled in this area and you're looking for practice, I mean, everyone, everyone's values are their own, but working on environmental values to act in concert with them, it's a pretty safe place to do it. Like no one will get mad at you. Whereas if you try it with social skills in the office, sometimes you might feel risky talking to your boss in a new way or something like that. So for this is me putting in a plug. If you're looking for areas to practice this in, this is a pretty safe way. If like, if your habit is to pick up one piece of trash per day, no one's going to be like, you're such a jerk for picking up garbage. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> Not anywhere that I can think of. Yeah. And I, you've talked about this, but I'm going to still ask it more blunt, more directly is what was the emotional journey of this? Like, is it, how would you describe it? I, I just don't think that it was particularly overwhelming. i felt that it's a very achievable goal. I like to set goals that I feel are achievable. I don't like to set myself up to fail. So I really do check in with myself that it feels right and authentic and meaningful to me. Um, I wanted to do it. And I know that I have the time, resources, ability to get it done. So it was just a matter of bringing it into some level of consciousness and, and moving it forward. So, you know, we got off the phone and I, the last podcast, and I, I set my mind around the next grocery shopping experience to think about it differently. It came to me pretty quickly. That was the part that surprised me a little bit. But once I came up with a new system, it, it was kind of seamless. So I'm reading, if I can put names to the emotions, maybe anticipation or uh, enthusiasm maybe, and then kind of a determination or problem solving that, and then followed by surprise and then followed by, oh, easy. That's fair. Yeah. I mean, I, I would say on a scale of one to 10, those emotions were pretty mid-level, but yeah, it's fair. Okay. And how about relationships? Did it affect the relationships? I mean, your son sounds like the it would be the most affected, but it doesn't sound like it was that big. A, I'm not sure. No, no, it didn't really have an impact on anybody because it's, you know, this is all within my, my wheelhouse of things I'm doing. So I wasn't negotiating it with somebody who I'm living with or my son doesn't grocery shop. So it's, <laughs> it's pretty easy. And so is it permanent? Is it going to decrease, increase? It will lead to other things? Um, I, I do feel it's permanent. I don't think this is particularly, I, yeah, you know, I kind of struggle with that. It's permanent insofar as like this life stage, right? So I've figured out a solution that made sense for this moment in my life. I've got, I am between relationships. I am not living with another adult. My son is 13, he's living with me. Can I speak to the fact that if I were to be in another relationship and that person has three children and they grocery shop differently, or we're just managing thinking about food completely differently, or, you know, my son leaves for college, right? Like, I, I think it's really important that as life changes, we continually uh, keep up with the things that are our values and how they need to shift with the changes in our, in our day-to-day life. So I think as so insofar as our current life situation, this is something that's pretty easy to continue. I'm glad you framed that how you did. Cause it was, as soon as you said, I was like, God, oh, that's so obvious. And yet I didn't even think of it. It's like, yeah, life changes in big ways. 
And you can't predict these things. And those are the big problems that when I want to change something in my life, I have to think of not how I feel now, but how I might feel later. And keeping in mind that I can't predict how some things are going to change. Yeah. Yeah, we don't know, right? Like anything we try to do about the future is us just, there is no future. It's not set yet. It's not written in stone. Our life isn't um, determined. So we have free will and things are unrolling as they happen. And so I, the only thing that we can predict about our future is just us using our imaginations, right? Where it's really purely a just creative imagination into the future and projection. So when we get there and we find out what is really happening in a month or a year or in six years, you know, the, the things that made sense to me at 30, the way I looked at my life, what caused me to feel happy or sad, my needs, um, they're just not the same as they are today. And quite frankly, I've had a lot of shifts in my life in the last year and a half. And what made me happy two years ago is not even close to what's making me happy today. So I just think keeping up with that and um, being open to, there's no right or wrong answer to our lives. It's just really considering those values what you feel is aligned and how you want to set up your life in this particular life stage. I have to, I don't want to leave too much dead air for listeners, but I want to, I'm just going to have to go back and re-listen to that a few times because you said some things that were, as you said, I was like obvious and yet I hadn't put them so simple. And it it just told me, yes, this is someone who has examined and changed her life several times. It, It told me, and I could be wrong, but that you spoke with experience of having gone through changes and, and deliberate changes and seeing some of them not work out and seeing some of them work out and to d- disentangle why it would work sometimes and why not others. You know, the biggest thing that I've realized and why I'm so passionate about this point is I, when I started the work on myself, I was, you know, um, in my early thirties, I started doing yoga. I started getting more spirituality. I was a business person. I'm changing careers. I've got a young child and all the changes I made, I thought, oh, you know, emotional obesity, I'm shedding the weight, I'm going to, and then when I get there, I'm going to be good to go, right? That really was, I think there's this belief when I have a certain amount of success and when I get there, I'm going to be good to go. When I get myself into a better state emotionally, I'm going to be good to go. But life is not like that. Our shifting and changing and our circumstances are changing. And so I started The Art of Authenticity, the podcast, because I realized it's an art form. There's an art to this and it's shifting all the time. And we have to constantly reimagine and recreate based on what is being presented to us because we don't, <laughs> we don't know that in a few years we may be sick or a loved one you know, needs us or we're going through a divorce or a career change or whatever is going, around, uh, going on around you externally, maybe your age, maybe you know, your, your interests have shifted. Maybe you've met somebody and they've brought some really interesting new paradigms into your life. So I think there's an endless keeping up with re-examining what makes sense to me today is not what made sense to me when I had a three-year-old. It is, and I, and I assume when my sons left the house, you know, things will shift again. And that's just one area of my life. Um, certainly as I'm rolling up to 50, it's nothing like what mattered to me when I was in my twenties. And so I think letting go of, I'm going to get there, there's a right answer. And when I get there, I'm going to feel a certain way. And when I feel a certain way, my life is going to be complete. When I let go of that entire way of framing things and just realized, oh, it's an endless flow. It's an endless navigation. And that's okay. There was a sort of peace that happened for me when I, when I saw it that way. Sounds like a, a bigger scale version of a change that when I used to think of life a lot like a chess game, 
And then I found a lot of things that makes a lot more sense to think of life like surfing, giant forces of nature. And I'm not trying to control or beat them or keep score or follow specific rules. But the best thing I can do is enjoy the ride as best I can, not trying to beat the wave or dominate the wave. And then the more that I've done that, the more like that the surfing seems to work for more and more and more things in life or skiing. And a hundred percent. I can't agree with you more. I, I actually use the surfing analogy in my book, ironically. Uh, yeah. I, I think that there is this, again, maybe it's very American, but I'm going to get out there and I'm going to win. I'm going to get to a certain point. I'm going to find success. And when I get there, it's going to feel a certain way. It's not true. Right? Life is much more like a wave and it is there's the external pieces of the wave. If, if you think about life, right, the, wa- the wave is the things outside of us. We can't control those. Um, you don't know if you're going to get on. I don't surf, but when you pick a wave, you don't know if it'll get you to shore. You don't know if it'll go for a few feet. You don't know if you'll fall out. You just got to, you know, try your hardest within the parts that you have, uh, that you have control over and focus on those things. And if it doesn't work, jump on a new wave. And, you know, that's the adventure of life. It's, it's such a, a rich analogy. So I, I'd like to close with a couple of questions, although I'm going to ask one, if you want to engage on it, feel free, but if not, I'll just go to the others. Cause you said one of the changes that is picking up in your life possibly was a spiritual modality. And I wonder if the food and environment activity affected that. And if you want to engage on that, great. If not, I, I, I like to ask, is there anything I didn't think to ask to, that's worth bringing up? Um, no, I appreciate that. Yeah, the spirituality piece, um, I was brought up in Chicago. My parents are University of Chicago. Uh, my dad's a doctor. I was brought up close to atheist. But I, uh, I always read philosophy. I was always sort of intrigued and interested. I've, it never made sense to me that we just die in, in the ground and nobody's ever done a double blind placebo trial on death and somehow they're saying they're a hundred percent sure. And I'm like, but there's no scientific method that's tested death. So how do you know that it's just that we die? And anyways, the whole thing didn't, didn't appeal to me at all. And, um, the spirituality really came into my life with yoga and Eastern philosophy. And it's like, I turned a corner. I started looking at the world through a, a different lens and, you know, I really, do believe that we come back many times. I believe that we're here to learn lessons. And I do believe that the universe is working with us in a bunch of ways. And as I've adopted all those ideas, I've just had so many experiences that more validate that to be true than the opposite. So uh, I don't know that the environment per se has played a role in that. Um, It's been something I've been studying and thinking about for a couple decades and, you know, it's a meaningful piece of my life. I'll be curious to find out, to hear if the food practices connect with the spirituality. I mean, for me, after years of like chopping vegetables and tasting them and going to the farm has, there's richness and complexity and connection in there that I never anticipated when I would see my mom cooking and I'd ask her, why do you do it? She'd say, oh, I find it relaxing. But I think that was, that was I think a tiny piece of so much more. Yeah. I mean, if you're asking in my life, a hundred percent, I think the idea of food and and how we treat our bodies and, you know, I've, I've always worked really hard to think about what I put in my body and how it affects me and what makes sense for my body. And um, there's so many fad diets, you know, that people go on, but I really think it's about, you know, really learning what makes sense for you, what feels right to you. 
And again, that shifts. Um, it's not always the same. So I do cook and I do find that experience. It's the mindfulness conversation. Um, and I think it can be in a moment of cooking and chopping a vegetable in a moment of pause where you, you know, really see the person who you're speaking to. You really see past the human experience and you really connect at a soul level. It can be walking in the park, right? But there's this um, ability to step out of time and into a moment and get into that presence and into the, you know, the spiritual center of our lives. And I think that's where beauty is and creativity. And that's where I, you know, truly replenish. This is, I could go on for a long time. <laughs> I'll wrap up with the, with the question of, uh, is there anything I didn't think to bring up or any message that you want to give directly to the listeners? Yeah, thank you. No, I, I feel you've done such a great job. You're always so um, thoughtful and and curious about you know the different directions our conversations flow in. I just think to anybody who's listening, you know, pick something, but but try. I think the thing that I enjoyed is I didn't make it a, a task that was an opportunity to self hate. So the the thing that I um, find super frustrating right now on in the internet in particular, but there's a lot of shoulds. And if I wake up at five in the morning and I jog and I do all of these things, then I will feel a certain way. And if I feel a certain way, then I will be successful. I don't agree with that mindset at all. I think, you know, so pick something that resonates with you where you feel it brings you joy to try to do. And as you're doing it, find the pleasure in those moments and not some kind of, you know, opportunity to tell yourself how you suck and you need to get this done and you should have done it 10 years ago and you know you're not doing it enough right i think we're so hard on ourselves so that would be my only tip to anybody listening who's interested in giving it a try is you know be kind to yourself in in doing it and figure out a way to be successful where the process itself is actually pleasurable so you've resources that can help them can you share books and podcasts and things like that how they can find out oh my god i have so many that i love we'll start with your own uh, my book, Emotional Obesity, um, you can find that on Amazon. Uh, the podcast is The Art of Authenticity. I've interviewed so many people on how they stay in an authentic life, habits. Joshua came on, but you know, there's, I think, a couple hundred interviews on there at this point. I'm such a fan of so many different works out there, but I mean, my particular favorites are The Four Agreements. I'm a big fan of Eckhart Tolle. Um, if you're really out there and you want to try something cool, Krishnamurti, uh, Freedom from the Known is, is an extraordinary book. Laura Coe, thank you very much. Thank you. appreciate you having me. This common practice of saying that people don't care inhibits people from acting. I find that regarding the environment, that everybody cares. Nobody wants mercury in their fish. To say that they don't makes them feel that you don't understand them, which undermines your ability to influence them. I can't stand people making environmental behavior a moral issue. If you say to someone they don't care, they think, I do care. If you think that I don't, up yours. You're not superior to me. More counterproductive than just that knee-jerk reaction, though, is that they think of their justification for what behavior affected the environment, reinforcing that feeling. That is, if you say to someone that they don't care, but they feel that they did, they're going to justify why what they did was caring, even if you felt that that was something hurting the environment. To me, it's like advice trying to attract a girl or a guy who isn't showing you attention. I recommend never asking someone that you want to be attracted to you, why don't you find me attractive? Because whatever vague feeling they had before you asked 
you asking led them to say it out loud, which solidifies and strengthens that feeling. Now they find you less attractive more strongly. So telling someone that they don't care about the environment leads them to keep doing what they were doing. I'm sure that people have done it with you at some time. I bet I can show you now. I don't know you. You know that I don't know you. But try this. Pay attention to your feelings when I say the following words. So listen to the words, but pay attention to your feelings. You pollute unnecessarily. Clearly, you don't care about the environment. Now, you know that I wasn't saying that to you in particular. I was just saying that. But did you feel compelled to say how actually you do care? If so, then I probably reinforced your current behavior. Actually, I bet you do care. And the more that you act on what you care about, the better you feel. So I hope I didn't discourage you, but I wanted to treat that issue. Did you feel inspired too? Then act. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and click to commit to your personal challenge so you can inspire others. Value means better and worse. And living by your values means living better by your values. You may struggle at first, but it's the hero's journey from living by others' values to living by yours. People say that little things add up. I won't argue against it, but what I find counts is acting. Doing something, anything, starts that mindset shift from the debilitating others should act first or making excuses to the empowering I can make a difference and living by my values improves my life. I don't have to wait for others to act first. I'm looking for leaders, people who will bring what works here in this podcast to communities I haven't reached. Billions of people want to change their behavior. There's room for leadership from personal leadership of just yourself to whatever scale you want. Start by acting and changing yourself. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and commit to your personal challenge.